Good morning, Grace Point. It is great to see you today. We're so thrilled you're with us, especially if you're here for the very first time. So whenever you are, are engaging with this, wherever you are in the world, welcome. We're thrilled to have you as a part of our gathering today. We've been in a series for a while now talking about the reimagining, reframing, and reclaiming of the language of faith, the sort of the Christian vocabulary. And we've explored uh, words like sin, salvation, and all those kind of big words. And the last week we talked about judgment. And my intention was that last week and this week would sort of connect with each other. So just a refresher, uh, if you missed last week or if you're kind of wondering, hey, because I had to do this too, like what did I talk about last week? Um, so we talked about the difference between sort of a, a judgmental kind of judgment and then judgment uh, in another sense. So when we talked about judgmental judgment, we talked about judgment as this sort of way to control people. Often, most, most times, using fear and shame as the motivator. Um, sometimes even using good things as a motivator, but the point is to control people, to get them to do what we want. But we talked about this other idea of judgment, which we need to hang on to, specifically that judgment in the Bible is a good thing because it locates God in the place where our ancestors located her, and that is with the poor, with the marginalized, with the oppressed, and willing their liberation. So I even said, I think that's one of the big themes of the entire Bible, that God is on the side of the poor and the oppressed, and God wills their liberation. So this week, I want to pick up that idea of judgment, this idea that when that God takes a side, essentially, when, um, when, when the vulnerable, the marginalized, and the oppressed are um, wounded, hurt, left out, um, mistreated, God takes a side, and God essentially sides with the oppressed and wills their liberation. But I want to talk about what that means and what maybe a holistic understanding of justice might look like. Now, I want to pick up this idea in the Sermon on the Mount, which is what we looked at last week um, to, in Jesus' teachings, not to judge. But I want, I want to look up uh, in Matthew chapter 6, I want to look at verse 33, and I want to think through what Jesus is calling us to and inviting us to in, in this particular uh, invitation. Now, he's been talking about worry, and he's been calling people away from worry. If we think about like, judgment is about us trying to control others and our invitation last week was like, what if we entrust others to God? The Jesus teaching on worry is essentially saying, what if you entrusted yourself to God? And so at the end of this teaching on worry, Jesus is talking about all the things that we tend to worry about, what we'll eat, what we'll drink, where it'll come from. And Jesus says this, instead, don't worry, instead, desire first and foremost God's kingdom and God's righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And so I want to think there are three words when I engage that text, when I read that text, that just sort of pop out. The first is desire. So I want to talk about that. And then I want to talk about kingdom. And then I want to talk about righteousness. So if we begin with desire, um, the word desire here, it's, it's not like a passive sort of word. It's an active word. It means to seek in order to find. Right? It's looking, but it's looking with the intent of actually finding it. Uh, it can actually be translated as crave. We might even say it's sort of a longing that we're trying to fulfill. So Jesus says, desire God's kingdom. One of the things that many of us were continually told in the framework we grew up in, the Christian framework we grew up in, is that we can't trust our desires. And that if desire is present in us at all, it is actually probably a bad thing. And yet we're invited here to see that differently, that desire in and of itself isn't a problem. And actually desire is exactly what we need, Jesus says, in this context because it's a desire for something, for some experience, for some reality. And he talks about God's kingdom. Now, kingdom, uh, the great Christian philosopher Dallas Willard 
define kingdom as the range of effective will, which essentially just means that your kingdom, my kingdom, God's kingdom is wherever the, our will gets done. God's kingdom is where God's will gets done. My kingdom is where my will gets done. Right? Your kingdom is where your will gets done. Sometimes our kingdom feels really, really small. Like maybe it's just the radio in the car or what you get on your sandwich at Subway. Um, and other times it feels much broader than that. But the kingdom, essentially think about it like this. God's kingdom is what would the world be like if God's will were to be done on earth as it is in heaven? What would the world look like? And we can ask that in terms of justice, right? If God's kingdom were being brought about on earth as it is in heaven, if justice were rolling like the rivers and the seas, what would that world look like? It would be a world of equity, a world of enough, right? I mean, we can begin to imagine. And I think kingdom is one of those sort of outdated words that for lots of us is a problem. So we can think of it as the commonwealth of God, the kingdom of God, the community of God, whatever. Don't let the language trip you up. The reality is it's pointing to something larger. And that is, what would the world be like if, if God were in charge of the world? If everything were being done the way the, the divine willed it to be done, what would that look like? And then there's the word righteousness, right? Desire the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God. Now, we hear this word righteousness, and we tend, at least I tend, to think about a kind of moral purity or a moral uprightness. When you think about somebody who's self-righteous, they, they sort of look down on everybody else because they can't live up to their standard of morality. That's actually part of the definition you'll find in the dictionary. If you look up righteousness, it'll say something about the quality of being morally right. But here's the problem. The word that is translated here, righteousness, it comes from the original Greek that the New Testament was written in. And the word that we translate righteousness in the Greek in the New Testament, it's the word dikaiosune, and it means justice. When it says we translate it righteousness, um, but maybe even let's think about it differently. Let's think about it, rightness, justice, things being put right, things being made right. I mean, that's what justice is all about, things being put right. Uh, you know, the world, if justice is going to take place in the world, then there are things in the world that have to be put in the way that N.T. Wright and some of our British friends would say is that it has to be put to rights. The world needs to be put to rights. And so the, the conversation of justice, we're talking about righteousness, we're talking about justice. And so when we talk about God's righteousness, we're talking about God's passion for justice, God's passion for a world made right, a world that is equitable, and a world that is just. And over the last 2,000 years of Christian tradition, we have unfortunately shifted the focus, moving from a movement that resisted the injustice of empire by seeking to create communities that were equitable and generous and compassionate, communities that were just, that would, as they spread throughout the world, would transform the world. And instead, we turned it into a religion that is obsessed with doctrinal purity and with afterlife assurance. Pursuing justice... Pursuing justice is the mandate, maybe put it like this, pursuing justice is the birthright of a Jesus community. A community that is following Jesus' feet, footsteps is a community that is on the trail of justice. It's actually been said that, that justice is what love looks like in public, right? So for all the talk about love, if it doesn't sort of just bleed out into the world in the form of pursuing justice, then it really is just sort of a clanging gong or a, a ringing cymbal. 
since that's the case, if, if what we're talking about here is not moral purity, if what, we're not talking about moral uprightness, we're talking about actual justice in the world, it may be helpful for us to ask the question, what do we mean by justice? And this is sort of where the disconnect has come up for me. Uh, I've spent my life in two very different worlds. The, probably the largest chunk of my life was spent in the world of conservative and, in my early years, fundamentalist Christianity. Um, so my earliest years, it would have been King James only, you know, that sort of thing. Um, later on, we, went to, we became liberals, right? We, we went to the Southern Baptist Church, and we became liberals, and um, still it was within the world of conservative Christianity. The approach to justice, as I understood it growing up, was punitive and retributive. And what I mean was it was about punishment and about revenge or about retribution. The goal was not, uh, the, the goal was simple. It was to punish and gain a measure of retribution, the point was to do to them whatever harm they'd done to us, and maybe we would even take it up a notch. Now, this didn't spill out. We didn't talk about it like this, but it really came from our understanding of what God was like. It came from our understanding that ultimately God is punitive and retributive, which means that ultimately God, if we don't do what God wants, if we don't believe um, the right things, if we don't have doctrinal purity down, then we are in big trouble. And the, the sort of the, the end game is that we're going to stand before God and not just a, any God, a punitive and retributive God, a God who because of our sin and, and misbelief, our, the, er, the errors of our ways, um, that that God would want to punish us to gain a measure of retribution because we had offended this God's honor, we had besmirched this God's dignity, and now we had to pay the price. And the price was punishment. It wasn't just, it wasn't just retribution. It was retribution that we were being punished as well. We punished others then because that's what our conception of God was like. Well, this is what our God is like, so this is how we treat others. Somebody steps out of line, we publicly shame them as much as possible, and we reject them and move them away. All right? I mean, how, how many people have been hurt through the religious system because they didn't measure up, and even maybe they tried and didn't measure up, and then sort of the way they were pushed out and pushed away and faced punishment and retribution. We punished others because that's what our conception of God was like. And after all, we shape our gods, and then our gods shape us. We decide what our gods are like, and then that reality begins to shape how we see ourselves and see people around us. Because I think we talked about this last week, all Theology ultimately is anthropology. And what I mean is what we think about God, we will also think about human beings. It will, and so if you, if you start with a flawed conception of God, you ended up with a, a flawed conception of human beings. If you start with a flawed conception of what it means to be human, you often end up with a flawed conception of the divine. So that was my earliest upbringing. Conservative Christianity, a punitive, retributive God, which led us to, uh, in some ways, even relationally, be punitive and retributive with each other. For the majority of the last decade, I've spent my life engaged in more progressive or some would say liberal spaces. Now, the theology in the progressive world has been much more resonant for me. The image of God, who is love, who has an ever-expanding table at which all her children have a place, has transformed so much of my life. It has made it so much easier to sleep at night, knowing that I'm ultimately not outpedaling a God who is hateful and punitive and retributive. The problem is when it comes to justice, 
when it comes to how we enact justice, how will justice come about in the world? What I've discovered is that progressives and liberals actually seem far too often to have the same response as our conservative counterparts. We tend to be punitive and retributive ourselves. That's, that's why we cancel people, right? I mean, that's, what, that's where cancel culture comes from. And yes, cancel culture existed in conservative circles way before it existed in progressive circles. But this is not a chicken and egg conversation. That's why we do it, though. Somebody, we cancel people because they did something that was hurtful, offensive, or dehumanizing towards someone else. And in response, we turn those same things back on them, pushing, punishing them with the same weight um, of the Internet, right? That's what we do. We, somebody does something, we, just, we then decide we're going to cancel that person. And it doesn't matter who they are or what their label is. I see this happen on the Internet all the time. Folks who proudly claim sort of a progressive, not only a progressive, but a progressive Christian lens, who then are right in the thick of canceling people. Of I mean, I've seen people say things like, man, I wish hell existed so you could go there, right? Like, is that, is that what we ultimately, is that the best message we have? The problem here isn't that we call out unjust and dehumanizing behavior. We must do that. If we watch something that is dehumanizing, something that is harmful, and we don't speak up, we are now part of the problem. But if we speak up and do so in ways that further deepen the wounds, we're also part of the problem. So we must speak up. I think we have to understand the problem is we have to make sure what our goal is. I think before we engage, we have to know what is the goal here. When we confront an injustice, is the goal just to punish the perpetrator of the injustice? Is it to make them feel every bit of the pain that they have dealt out, to feel it also themselves? Is our main goal to even the score? Because it seems so at times. And evening the score ultimately is just keeping the pain in circulation. And that actually doesn't make the world better. What if our goal was transformation? What if our goal is speaking up? Even when we see something, even something that makes our blood boil because we see someone dehumanizing someone else and we know we have to speak up. What if our ultimate goal wasn't just to make that person feel bad? What if our ultimate goal was, what if this could lead to transformation? What if the goal was restoration? What if we engaged the pursuit of justice with the intention to participate in the transformation, not just of systems, but of people who are part of systems? Right, because we want to change systems. But what we often fail to realize is that behind those systems are human beings. And we really can't change systems well, we're, we're, if we're not also engaged in the work of changing human beings, creating the conditions that might make change possible. This is, for me, it's about how much better the story of restorative justice might be. We not only work to liberate the oppressed, we also invite the oppressor to leave behind their need to oppress. We not only stand and march for the dehumanized, but we invite the dehumanizer to see how their behavior has harmed others and hopefully choose to repent and experience that transformation too. We can't guarantee that, but what if we, what if we made that a goal? What if our goal was not just to say, look how you've dehumanized, but what if the goal was to say you have dehumanized them and in doing so you've dehumanized yourself? And what if there was a better way to live? I'm reminded of Jesus who called us to turn the other cheek, which is ultimately an attempt to assert 
the dignity of our own humanity, and also to remind our oppressor that not only are we human, but they're human. And maybe they're trapped in an unjust system, but they don't have to stay there. Oppressors don't have to be oppressors. And in Jesus' teaching, he's giving things like turn the other cheek. It's, it's not like be a doormat. What he's saying is assert your dignity as a human being. Assert your dignity as an equal human being. I think MLK, who often spoke of his sick white brothers, refusing to dehumanize the very people who were dehumanizing and threatening him. And he created a space that could make transformation possible. I think one of the reasons, a couple of the reasons, there are a couple of reasons, I think, that we don't make the jump from retributive to restorative justice. And I think the first is that this business of loving enemies and refusing, refusing revenge is difficult. Because you know, for Jesus, loving his enemies looked like a cross, absorbing and transforming pain and returning it as a love. I mean, what if we thought about the cross that way? The cross is absorbing pain, but instead of returning it, it's transformed and then returned in love. That work isn't easy. And I found myself at times and in moments wanting to abandon this difficult work in favor of inst the instant gratification of snark. I cannot tell you the number of times I write a tweet and maybe even hit send and immediately go and delete it because like what the world needs most is not my snark and my condescension and my sarcasm and my cynicism. What the world needs more than anything is hope. What the world needs more than anything is this vision that we can all be better. We can transform and we can transform the world. Yet the truth is that revenge and retaliation launch us into a never-ending cycle of pain. And as difficult as the work of loving is, it's actually what leads to the fullest kind of life. I, I don't think you'll ever talk to anybody who's done this work, who's done the work of absorbing pain, transforming pain, and returning it as love to the world. I don't think you'll ever meet anybody who says, I wish I'd just gotten revenge more. I wish I'd just been snarkier. I wish I'd just, that one thing I should, that one tweet I was going to find, I should have just done that, right? I don't think anybody would have said, I wish I'd have spent more time hurling insults. I, I, bet, I bet most of us won't get to the end of our lives and say, you know, I think that my work would have been more fulfilling if I could have just said that one thing to that one jerk on the internet. And so first, I think part of the reason it's hard to make that jump from retributive justice to restorative justice is because the work of loving enemies and refusing revenge is difficult. And second, it flows from this first. I think we all carry a lot around, around a lot of pain, hurt, and grief. I mean, all of us, no matter how good your life has been, no matter how hard, like we all carry around different traumas and different pains and different griefs that have just been with us and are in us and are part of our stories. And Richard Rohr says this, if we don't transform our pain, we will transmit it. Right? If, if we don't do something with it, if we don't find a way to do something constructive and transformative with our pain, it's just going to be passed around in a cycle. We're going to give it to that person. Like, if I don't transform, I'm going to give it to my wife. I'm going to give it to my kids. I'm going to give it to my friends. I'm going to give it to my community. I'm going to pass it around because it, it doesn't just want to stay there. It wants to go. It wants to go other places. And so Rohr says, if you don't learn to transform pain, right, the, the, the cross experience absorbing, transforming, and returning in love. If we don't transform our pain, we'll transmit it. And that's a great soundbite. That's a great quote. But the reality invites us to embrace is challenging. 
Transforming pain means being present to it. It means doing the work of processing all the thoughts and feelings that our particular pain has left us, left us with. I don't know if you've noticed this, but sometimes I'll even find myself sort of responding in a way, like angry or hurt or, or maybe some mixture of all of that. And my response is usually like, boom. And then I'm just sort of left to go, where did that come from? It came from pain. And it often can, it comes from pain that is just below the surface that we haven't been paying attention to that we wanted to maybe even pretend that we didn't have because I should be bigger than that and I shouldn't let that bother me and that should roll off water on a duck's back, you know, all the cliches around this. But the reality is that pain that isn't transformed is transmitted. And if we don't do something with our pain, if we don't process it, be present to it, ask questions about it, let it kind of express to us where it's from and what it's up to, then we're not going to be able to transform it. And until we transform it, that pain will be passed around to those around us, usually those closest to us. And sometimes on the internet, people we don't even know. We can experience the difference between, we've all probably experienced the difference between people who have gone through something that was deeply painful and who then seek to pass that pain on to other people like a hot potato. And we've also known those who've endured great pain and then who spend their lives trying to help those who've experienced similar grief. Because pain will either be transformed or transmitted. And pain that is transformed goes into the world through love to transform everything and everyone it comes in contact with. I think for many of us, somehow letting go of the punitive desire for revenge, it, it, it makes us a bit nervous because it seems like the people who hurt us and acted unjustly toward us, we're afraid they're just going to get off scot-free. Because ultimately, deep down, we probably maybe have a hunch that God will be far more gracious to others than we might be. We all want God, for, we all want God to be kind and gracious to us, right? But we don't always want God to do that to certain people. Not everybody. I love the idea that God has the whole world in our hands. I love the idea that God loves everyone in the world except for this list I've got. And if God, if, if you could just avoid loving these people and doing good things for these people, that would be great, right? Like that's sort of in there somewhere, even though I don't want to admit it. We just don't want God or others to be kind to the people who've hurt us, perhaps. But see, the Christ path is about this journey. The Christ path is about the journey from a punitive, retributive approach that just seeks to punish and even the score to a, the embracing of a restorative approach. Because the best stories are not, this person was hurt by this person, this person got even with that person, and that's the end of the story. This country offended this country, so this country bombed this country, and this country gave up, and that's the end of the story. The best stories are the ones where peace is made. And I don't mean false unity peace. I don't mean just papering over the issues peace. I mean hard-won peace that comes through meaningful dialogue, conversation, engagement, because we have decided that people are important and that we don't just want to cancel people who have hurt us. We don't want to just get rid of them. That the best story is a story of transformation. The best story is the story of restorative justice, the story where peace is made the story where wholeness can emerge. Now, that doesn't mean that every single person out there is mine or yours to enter that process with. There are some people that you and I need boundaries from. 
right? P people who maybe have wounded us and hurt us in a certain way. And we just need to sort of, we just need to peace out and we need to stay away from that encounter. But I hope somebody will step in. I hope somebody will lead that process of restoration. I hope somebody will lead that process that leaves the door open for transformation, for something new and unexpected to occur. So that a story that seemed to be born out of pain and hurt and sadness and grief might actually be transformed into a story where something new was beautiful, something new and beautiful was born out of something that began as painful. Restorative doesn't mean ignoring what's happened. It doesn't mean that there won't be a process of accountability. It doesn't mean that people won't, if there's a legal situation, that there's still gonna be a legal situation, right? That's not what it means. What it does mean is that the end goal becomes different. And that changing of the goal transforms the process. When the goal is not just to heap on them what they've done to us, when the goal is not just to make them feel as bad as we felt, but when the goal ultimately is leaving hope that something could be changed, that something could be transformed, that something new could happen, it changes the whole process. Our goal is not to punish or humiliate or cancel. Instead, our goal is to walk through a process that in the end will create the conditions and opportunity for a person to experience a transformation and a restoration that would be an actual beautiful story to tell. When progressive Christians make this kind of restorative justice our goal, we will really have something to offer the world that is revolutionary, that people haven't tried really within human history, that is healing, that doesn't just paper over the wind, that actually can bring healing and I think something that is bursting with hope. And what our world needs right now more than anything else, it's people who are bursting with hope. Not doc kind of doctored up hope that, you know, we're really just pretending. So, But I'm talking about real hope that we are in a moment, um, both as a country and as a world, we are at a moment where real change is possible, where things could be different. Where that, that sort of that cry we've had throughout human history, how long? How much longer? How long until we give up the idea that violence can solve the world's problems? How long until swords are beaten into plowshares and AR-15s into pruning hooks? How long? How long until injustice and inequity and dehumanization, how long until those things are now part of the past and not a part of the present and not a part of our future? How long? We were at Cohen's first, we took him to his first protest a month or so ago. And um, at the end of the protest, we, we met outside of a, a, a justice center and there was some singing, some chanting. And he actually said to me at one point as we were walking back, he said, you know, who knows, maybe when I'm older, I'll be leading a, a chant at a protest like this. And I, I just thought for just a moment and said, you know, I hope, but I hope that the reason we're here today is that, I hope what that means is that you won't have to lead the chant at a protest. How long? Till justice rolls like a river, righteousness like a never-ending stream. When the Christian tradition, especially those of us who are in the progressive Christian tradition, when we embrace this kind of justice, it begins to offer the hope for the healing. It offers hope that the how long may mean not much longer. What if we were to take this seriously? What if we were to take this into the world? Everything could change.